Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the Historical Fantasy Falcon series, and Girl of Fire, the first in the YA fantasy series. My October interview is with Mena van Prague, the author of the dark fantasy, The Sisters Grimm. Here's my review. In a setup reminiscent of the show Orphan Black, four feisty young women struggle to make their way in the world, unaware that they are related. Rather than having genetically identical material from a cloned person in common, these women all have the same father, a demon called Wilhelm Grimm. They differ from each other not only in their culture of origin and their appearance, but in their element affiliation. Each sister is magically aligned with one of the four elements, though not all of them are aware of their powers. Like many a villain, the incestuous Wilhelm wants only the strongest to survive and become his lovers and fellow fighters. So he will test his daughters before inviting them to join the dark side. Unbeknownst to them, assassins wearing the forms of appealing young men are drawing closer to study their victims and assess their weaknesses in preparation for combat on their 18th birthdays. The sisters met as children in a strange other world named Everywhere, but when they reached 13, they forgot their time there. Now they must remember so they can find and support each other before it becomes too late. Some of the sisters have had childhoods marred by sexual abuse or the mental illness of a mother. Will they all choose the light, or will Wilhelm Grimm find himself a new favorite daughter who will turn against the others, assuming any of them survived their supernatural assassins? So a little about Mena. She was born in Cambridge, England, and studied modern history at Oxford University. She's the author of five previous magical realism novels, all set in Cambridge. The Sisters Grimm is her first foray into fantasy. You can visit our website. It has some really nice graphics on it, too. That's uh, com. So her name is spelled M-E-N-N-A. V-A-N-P-R-A-A-G, no caps, in the website. She's on Twitter under her name. And when I invite her on the show, she's going to do a short reading before we start with the questions. Mena, welcome to the show. And Mena's going to do a short reading now. It is a place of falling leaves and hungry ivy, of mist and fog, moonlight and ice a place always shifting and always still. It never changes, though the mists rise and fall, the fog rolls in across the shores and the sea, but the moonlight never ebbs, the ice never melts, and the sun never shines. It is a nocturnal place, a place crafted from thoughts and dreams, hope and desire. It is lit by the sliver of an unwavering moon, unfettered by clouds, illuminating everything but the shadows. It is an autumnal place, but with a winter chill and hue. Imagine a forest that reaches between now and forever, 
with ancient trunks stretching to the marbled sky and an infinite network of roots reaching out to the edge of eternity. The entrance to this place is guarded by gates, perfectly ordinary if unusually ornate gates, that now and then, on that certain day, at that certain hour, transform into something extraordinary. And, if you've got a little grim blood in you, you might be able to see the shift. Stepping through a gate, you'll first be met by trees. They'll greet you with white leaves falling like rain, dusting a crisp confetti across your path, which crunches under your feet as you begin to find your way. Step carefully over the slick stones, or you may slip. Reach out to steady yourself, palm-pressed to the bleached moss that blankets every branch and tree. Soon you'll hear the rush of water, a vein of the endless river that runs on and on, twisting through the trees, turning with the paths, but never meeting the seas. It's a while before you notice that everything around you is alive. You'll feel the hum of the earth beneath your feet, the breath of the trees and the rustle of their leaves, the murmur of the birds in flight. As your eyes adjust to the light, you'll see the marks on rocks, crushed patches of leaves, slips in the mud, footprints. Others have been here before and you're following in their footsteps. You wonder how many have preceded you, which path they took, where they went and what they found, and so you walk on. As you walk, be careful to avoid the shadows. Steer clear of the creatures that lurk within. Don't listen to their voices, the persistent whispers that will linger in your mind. Instead, stick to the path, follow your heart, and let it lead you to the others just as they will be led to you. Ah, yes, that was very interesting. And in the reading, I did notice something you said, if you have some grim blood in you. And that reminded me of the inscription that you had in the beginning of the book uh, about grim blood. Is it only those four who have grim blood, or could there be many of us? who have that touch of magic. What do you think? I think we all do. And for me, the grim blood is a metaphor for the possibly undiscovered greatness that lies within us all. And so the story overall is a metaphor about magic that lies within. And the sisters don't realize that they have it. And then they discover that they do. And I feel that Many fantasy stories are about that. They're a wonderful metaphor for us to discover our hidden potential. Well, that's a very positive thing. But there is something disturbing about the sisters Grimm as well. They have a demon father in common, Wilhelm Grimm, who will test them on their 18th birthday. He appears mostly as a peripheral, though very disturbing, figure in his book, Tell us a little more about Wilhelm Grimm and why you chose that name for him. Well, he was inspired by the Brothers Grimm when I was studying, a long time ago, I was studying fairy tales. And I learned, which I hadn't known before, that the Brothers Grimm didn't write all those fairy tales as I thought they had, but they really appropriated them from folk tales, mainly oral folk tales that had been told through the centuries and often um, were in the circles of women. 
And I thought about how history generally ignores women and overlooks their contribution um, to creative ventures and all ventures, really. And so I felt that that was the spark of the dastardly nature of him. And so I, he came from that. And then I had the idea that all of the fairy tale characters were in a way his daughters. So I was thinking of Red Riding Hood and Goldilocks and Beauty and the Beast and all of these different Snow White, all these different fairy characters who he had sort of birthed and sort of stolen and they were all linked. And that was when I had the idea of them being half-sisters and placing them in the real world and having them need to discover each other and then find their strength in, in their connection. So like many abusive figures, Wilhelm Grimm kind of silences, silences his victims, the women. He takes on power by stealing their stories. That's what it made me think of. Then there's the mothers. So uh, all of the sisters have complicated relationships with their mothers who are absent or dead. Some of the mothers had magical powers in their own right due to being spawned by Grimm. Do all the mothers support Wilhelm Grimm? And are they complicit with his plan for world domination? No, most of them don't. I saw that most of them that he was this, you know, there was the light and the dark, and he mainly represented the dark, and they mainly represented the light. And sometimes they've been seduced by him, and mainly they haven't, and that's why he needs them to die, because he doesn't want their good influence on on the girls. And this was just also um, a symbolism of the light and the dark, and how we can go towards one or the other, and mainly it's about the internal darkness, about how we can succumb to self-doubt and um, self-criticism and then not become the women that we are meant to become or that we can become. You know, it's about, again, not fulfilling our potential, but it has as much to do with external suppression as it does to do with internal suppression. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, just to digress a bit, your interest in Tarot is apparent in the passages where you describe Liana's Tarot spreads and their implications. And there are also mentions of certain numbers, like, uh, for example, the land of everywhere is accessible only at 3.33 at night. Do you have an interest in numerology and other arcane matters as well? Yes, I've always, well, not always, but I started researching these things when I started writing stories, and I felt that there was a lot of overlap with, you know, the magic of fairy tales and the magic of things like tarot and astrology and numerology, and I always find them fascinating and illuminating. Um, I know a lot of people don't believe in them as accurate readings in life, but I think to me it doesn't really matter what you believe in because if something illuminates um, a truth within you, then it has intrinsic uh, importance. So that was something I 
started exploring a long time ago, and I wanted to put it into the story because this is the most magical story that I've written. Um, and the numbers fascinated me, the symbolism of them, and the stories that are told in tarot have always fascinated me as well. Uh, what is the um, the value of 333 at night? <laughs> well, that was from my own numerology. So my number is 336 oh, okay. uh, because we each have a number. And somebody, I can't remember the name right now, but wrote this wonderful book, Dan Millman possibly, about purpose and numerology. And I was reading it with my sisters and my mom, and we just discovered all these incredible things, and they very much reveal truths in ourselves that we hadn't been aware of before. And then I discovered that my husband was also a 33-6, which was really interesting mm -hmm. to me. And so that number has always been, you know, has always made me curious. And then I know a lot of people do this as well. Like, you know, if I catch a clock or something and it has 33 on it, it gives me a little shiver and I think, oh, that's exciting, you know, 11-11. Uh -huh. um, and I just use it as little nudges in my life. Mm -hmm. Maybe something's opening up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, back to the sisters. They all have their own voice and their own POV point of view. Uh, Goldie's is written in the first person, and her narrative kicks off the novel. Intriguing. She says, I've been a thief as long as I can remember. A liar, too. I might even be a murderer. So, that Goldie, she she sounds pretty dark. Is she the worst of the sisters? Um, For me, none of the sisters were very dark. I always felt, I explored, I set them up in the beginning so you see who they are now. And then there are flashbacks in time so that you can see why they became the way that they became. And I always feel that we are a combination of our environment and our innate um, beingness and we're all capable of doing horrendous things if we're pushed in certain ways or suffer great cruelties and I think to me she didn't do anything that bad but obviously you have to read the book to find out what she did and why she did it and some of the sisters are you know, leaning more in that direction than others. But I've always been fascinated by causality and what creates people in the way that they are. You know, in the way that people who have been really hurt can be very shut down mm -hmm. and hurt people. And I'm, I often tell my son because, you know, he's at school now and he's experiencing all of the different ways that children are and some of them are not as nice to him as others and I said it's generally people who are in pain that cause pain in other people and I notice it in myself you know if I'm suffering about something I'm not as nice as when I'm really happy when I'm really happy I'm incapable really of being nasty to people but when I'm really suffering I find myself snappy and not so nice and I think if you take that to the nth degree it's it explains a lot. 
Yeah, I've always been a proponent of what might be called selfish behavior, because if you can take good care of yourself and find your purpose, uh, then it's much easier to be kinder to others than if you're being exploited yourself. <laughs> I, I'm completely an advocate of that. I was actually having that exact conversation with a client yesterday, because I also teach creative writing, mm-hmm. and, it, and, and she's a mother. And I was saying, you know, you re- we think it's selfish, but actually it's the best care. The better care that we take of ourselves, the better care we take of others. Exactly. And often women especially give up too much. They give and they give, but they're going to snap in the end because that's just human nature. So if we take care of ourselves, we are taking care of other people. So it's really the most unselfish thing <laughs> we can do. Yeah, none of us are saints. Uh, And that kind of ties back to Goldie, because in the back, you included a short story. You included several short stories uh, adapted from fairy tales. And you had one about Goldilocks. And in your short story, Goldilocks starts off as a very sweet, kind girl. And she's praised for being so nice. So uh, what happens to her? And what conclusions should we draw from that? Well, that story was very much about people-pleasing, and that was something I experienced and still experience mm-hmm. quite a lot, but how, again, women can often give up themselves in order to get the approval of other people, and how we really need to ultimately have our own approval. And I found in my own life that the more I sought approval in other people, the more miserable I was. Mm-hmm. And it took me really great courage to be able to say no, to be able to stand the dislike of other people. Um, and in that, I found myself. So that story was very important to me. Yeah, yep. So uh, that was a little about Goldie. And as we mentioned, you had multiple points of view. Uh, what was a little unusual about your book is that the multiple points of view happened within one chapter, and often there are only a few paragraphs from each perspective. I wondered if that was your original intention as you were writing, or if that decision evolved through multiple drafts, and how does it serve your novel to adopt that structure? Well, that particular decision wasn't really a decision that came in the beginning because that's how I write all my stories. I've written a number of um, magical realism stories and I've always been fascinated by multiple POVs. I know, you know, a lot of people don't like them. They want one protagonist that you stick with and I love that too, but I love dipping from one to the other. And I think the art of it is that you write it so that you, you're not reluctant to leave one and enter the other one. And I think in the beginning you can be, but if you get used to the rhythm of it, it can be a really lovely way of experiencing a story and seeing all the different perspectives coming in. And I really enjoyed that. But there were other things that I definitely didn't plan at the beginning, um, like all the flashbacks mm-hmm. and the movement from one world to the other. And really, I think the whole story took me over, well over three years, three or four years to write. And it was so much more complicated than I ever imagined. And probably I ended up writing three times as 
many words as there are actually in the book. And if I'd have known how difficult that would be, I would never have started it. Um, but I think that's often the case, you know, that if you knew how challenging a project was by the time, you know, you just wouldn't even begin. So I think it's probably a good thing that we don't know. Yeah, it's hard sometimes when you're working with an editor too. If you already have the contract, I think then the editor points out something that can lead to a major shift like, oh no, but if I do that as they've suggested, I have to adjust this and this and this as well. Yes, that's true. And that's happened with the second book actually that I'm writing now. The first one, I wrote it out of contract. So I just oh, wrote okay. it exactly as I wanted it because it was very different from anything I've written before. It was a lot darker. Mm -hmm. And so I needed to separate that and write it just for myself. And it was the, the first time in a long time that I'd written a book just for myself. But there's a certain wonderful, you know, there's a terror in that because you never know whether someone will buy it. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also a wonderful liberation because writing a book just for yourself is a really fun thing to do. So that was that. But then I got a three-book deal, so then now I'm not writing them for myself. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's a different experience. Consequences of success. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, your main characters are all 17. They're on the cusp of an awakening, which technically would make this a YA novel. However, the young women are having sex, in some cases pretty casually, running their own businesses, taking care of various adult relatives, they seem much more grown up than the typical YA protagonist. Do you see your book as intended for a YA audience? No, definitely not. And I think, I mean, I justified their, their way of being because their sister's grim and they're much more advanced than, you know, your ordinary 17-year-old in a way. Um, but when I wrote the first draft, they were all different ages. I always like to explore women at the different stages of their life. And that was part of the editing process in the end, that they wanted them to be on the cusp of womanhood mm -hmm. rather than deep within it. Um, and I think that works as well because you have, you know, before you turn 18, it's a very significant moment in your life and you can really write about a lot that's going on for women and and I think the fact that they were all the same age added a certain power to it um, but it's definitely not a YA and I think it's a real shame it seems to only happen in fantasy really that there's these divisions and they're made you know based on perhaps not the tone of the book I mean sometimes I read YA books and I think oh my god that's so dark mm -hmm. you know it's, yeah, it's I upset have to. me <laughs> and I think I don't want to be reading about this kind of thing and I certainly wouldn't want my daughter to be reading about this kind of thing um so in my experience books for young people have gotten a lot darker than they used to be and whenever anyone asks me you know can I buy this for my teenager? I say, no, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, it's just a real shame. All of my other books are very definitely adult and nobody thinks that they're not. And I didn't really anticipate that this would happen with this one. 
So I just sort of wish I could put a warning on the cover. (laughs) Well, unless the daughter is a grim girl, then she'd be up for (laughs) it. Then then she could take it. So you mentioned uh, you've got a three-book deal. I assume you're working on your second one and have it. Or what are you working on and when would the second one be ready? Yes, I'm working on the second one right now. And as I say, there's a lot more edits than I anticipated. <laughs> um, because when, you, when you're working with an editor from the first draft, it's not so uh, free as mm-hmm. when you're doing it by yourself. Um, so that's been a little challenging to get back into the rhythm of that. But touch wood, I'm hopefully back in the rhythm of that. And then... The book should hit shelves, I think, in the U.S. in March and the U.K. in May. And what's the title of the second one? Uh, Knights of Demons and Saints. Okay, well, we'll let you get back to your writing, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Gabrielle. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network in Fantasy and Adventure channel. I've been talking to Minna von Prague about her dark fantasy novel, The Sisters Grimm, the first in the trilogy. Join me in November when I chat with Australian author and journalist S.J. Hartland about her sword and sorcery epic, The 19th Bladesman. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the YA fantasy Girl of Fire, the first in the Baroness Quest series. You'll find the podcast schedule on my website, gabriellematthew.com. I've got a French name, though I'm not French. G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-M-A-T-H-I-E-U.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. It's at Gabrielle Author. Till next time.